What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> you buying some new boots? I um, I was gonna buy some new boots, but for free uh, company time yeah. or you? No, for uh, for work. Let's roll into the podcast, and I'll tell you my boot situation. Hmm. I'm Chase Winninger, host of the podcast. Lee McClellan, co-host. Hope everyone's having a great time. And today's guest, Noel Thompson. Noel. Uh, good morning, guys. <laughs> no, Noel, you are. How, when did you start with the department? I started officially last September. Last September, and you are now? The deer program coordinator. Deer program coordinator. So people take deer pretty serious here in Kentucky, mm -hmm. so that's a pretty pretty good position there. It's an intimidating position. Yeah, well, I definitely want to roll into that and talk about some of what you're doing now, how you got hired on here, what it's been like, and things people need to know. But first, my boot situation. So I wear a size 16. Oh, Lord. So I, I saw those, I was like, Lord. I can't find boots in stores. Nobody carries 16s in stores. Um, Sportsman's, Academy, Cabela's, Best Pro, nobody has 16s available. I don't available. know if I've ever seen a size 16. I'm about no, probably a third of that. It's <laughs> tough. So I'm on the Danner website here. I have to order directly from them. So they no only. sales on size 16. Well, probably. and you know how things have been going with supply lately, <laughs> you know, with so they only have one boot that's available in a 16. So basically there there might be like three pairs of boots available right now in the United States that'll that'll fit me. So I'm trying to work it out so that I can get these. But it's a it's a real challenge. Like as far as being tall and buying clothes go, pants are a little tough, you know, shirts that's not an issue at all, but shoes are just about as bad as it gets. And I don't know if you ever do this Noel, but like just the guy in me sometimes i think about okay what if what if i got to go live off the land you know <laughs> like how am i going to survive if it, you know it all hits a fan like and shoes are one of my main concerns like if i ever like if say the civilization just crumbled and we had to survive when my shoes are done it's not like i can just go find another pair take somebody you know well so I, I don't know. That's one of those weird <laughs> thoughts that goes through my head. That does not regularly cross my mind. But now I think I'm. But it's I, going to. I wear tens, so I don't have anything. Well, you know, like a bunch of a bunch of people will, you know, have like a bug out bag or something. You know, like a little thing about like basically their camping bag, but it's emergency supplies and yeah. stuff. And that's one thing I think people always overlook is footwear. You know, because that's really, really, really important. And if you're someone like me who can't just go, they aren't going to be on the shelves in stores. They're not going to be in people's houses. I can't just get a size 16. And when those boots wear out, I'm pretty, I'm going to be making like moccasins, you know? So that's something that's crossed my mind. That's just completely random. But anyway, yeah, trying to get a new pair of boots for deer season. Deer season's right around the corner. And that's why we're here talking to Noel today. Because it is September the 3rd is when archery season kicks off. And I couldn't be more excited for it. Um... I know you don't really know me well, Noel, but there's not much I get more excited for than than the opening day of deer season. So I love hearing that. September 3rd is a big, big day for me. And September 1st, kind of like, you know, when dove season rolls in, kind of just puts the, it's almost like anxiety for deer season. I start having a hard time sleeping. <laughs> and this is how Kentucky deer hunters are. So are you from Kentucky originally? I'm not from Kentucky. I'm from Chicago. From Chicago. But you've, I'm sure you're learning this, that we take it very serious around here. I'm loving it, yes. And, <laughs> I know Illinois. Deer hunting is big in Illinois too. Probably not so much around Chicago, but in the neighbor—I mean, like Upper Illinois—that oh, has big. To be. We've got hunters in Chicago. They just have to outsource their hunting. Outsource it. Can yep. they bow hunt in Chicago? Uh very few areas. Okay, because here in Kentucky, that's always an option for urban areas. But um, <clears throat> let's see. So one of the things that's getting me pumped up for deer season is 
scouting for deer. Because basically, as soon as I put those trail cameras out and I start getting trail cam pictures back, that's when, like, you know, the heart starts beating a little bit harder. And, like, I have cell cams out this morning. I got pictures sent to me and, you know, getting me all. So, so not – they're set to send me pictures every – 12 hours so every 12 hours i'm thinking about deer hunting on the dot you know it's 805 in the evening 805 in the morning so i have this constant reminder day in day out that deer season's coming so and but what i wanted to talk about with the trail cameras is how we have them set up and i actually have a question for you i'm not sure if you'll be able to give me an answer to this because it probably depends more on my farm but i had been seeing a lot of bucks and i'm hunting soybeans right mm-hmm. soybean field and there's mm-hmm. corn planted adjacent and that corn through all that drought had stayed pretty, pretty stunted. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the past two weeks, I've seen my deer activity seriously drop off in those soybeans. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that corn is now five feet tall. You know, those deer probably, it's probably earing out. Those deer probably just transitioning from the soybeans where I'd been seeing them and scouting. You think that maybe my theory is that they're holding up in the corn because it's providing cover and food. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to consider how hot it's been lately. They might corn provides relief from the heat you think? oh yeah if you ever go through um some tall corn stalks it's pretty cool under there mm-hmm. see i try to avoid going through tall <laughs> like you they'll rip you up oh That's yeah it, oh yeah they'll rip you up and the spiders tend to you know there's webs all over the place so as i walk through corn stalks it's like i'm you know, when you're hiking, you're the first person on the trail in the morning, and you're just catching every spider web mm-hmm. for everybody that's going to come behind you in the day. So, and then some because you're much taller. Yeah, than much taller. The and rest. That's the thing. With being as tall as I am, there's literally no point in me going second or third because I still get hit right in the face with the spider webs. That, so, I, the way I look at it, I'm like, I might as well just go first because that's going to, you know, one person can actually get everything if we if we do it that way. Well, I've, my, my dad was an optometrist, and a guy one time was picking corn and bent over, and the corn leaf oh, yeah. cut his cornea mm-hmm. and left the little filaments in there. So every time he blinked, it was like oh. sticking uh, needles in his eyeball. Oh, I don't like that at all. And uh, dad had to remove him. He, he had to go down like 11 o'clock at night and remove him because he's like, the pain was just, I can't take it. And he pulled him out, with you know, and he peeled up. I'm not a fan. The worst, I've walked through a lot of corn, you know, and that gets pretty dusty in the fall. I used to have to one of my deer stands an 800-yard walk through standing corn. Um, and that was miserable, especially like when the corn starts to dry out and it gets dusty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's pollen. Tobacco is even worse because you'll get sick the worst i've ever done was hemp walking through a hemp field um to get to a stand that was like a 300 yard walk and hemp doesn't grow like corn it's not like in the rows you know it's kind of it's a lot thicker it's a lot more matted and when it seeds out or gets pollen on it it gets so much pollen it's it's like you're you ever seen a a a cedar tree burst Mm -hmm. with all the pollen all at once that's what when you walk through that hemp and you disturb it it's like clouds didn't you show me video or something of you shaking a hemp plant and the pollen is flying off of it? I don't it. think so. We've got video before while we've been fishing, uh, you know, because you can see the whole bank. You can see all the trees. We've got video of the trees bursting with pollen before the cedars. I might have shown you that. Hmm. But um, as far as our trail cameras go, we put up a picture last week on the Kentucky Field Facebook page of a buck that we're going to hunt for the show this year. And right. It's one that we saw last year. There were some doubters on there whether or not it was the same deer. Or not. It, it was the same deer, in mm-hmm. my opinion. But um, when we run our trail cameras for the show, we want to do it in a way because we're broadcasting our content all across the state. So we want to do it in a way that's legal all across the state. We don't want to show something that might not be legal for somebody. So we're doing it in a CWD surveillance zone approved way, which is basically just on a trail. Because currently right now, 
baiting is not allowed in those five counties, right? Correct. And the CWD surveillance zone? Exactly. And which five counties are those again? Um, Marshall, Callaway, Fulton, Hickman, and Graves. Graves. So basically the five furthest west counties in Kentucky. Correct. So because we can't, because baiting is banned in those counties because of CWD, which isn't there, but, you know, it's close. We, that's how we're running our trail cameras for the show. Awesome. Well, and it makes sense. But you get less pictures, but I do think you get a good represent. I mean, you still, if you get your cameras out early enough and you set it up in a good location, you can still take inventory of what's in the area. Yeah. Um, I personally, myself, have some old mineral sites that have been out. You know, deer will hit those for a long time. So that's kind of how I take inventory. But I just thought it was interesting how I'd noticed a significant drop-off in the amount of deer I was seeing right around the time that we started getting some some rain and so what made sense to me was either the the water source has changed like they now have a water source available that they can use that is drawing them away from where i'm at or it's that corn getting taller and you think that that corn could be could be what it is i think if it's still the heat that's affecting them that they're gonna look for more shade yeah well that makes sense more shade and And food like i said that corn's a fattier food source so you know, this time of year, I'm not sure what exactly they're doing. Are they trying to bulk up already? Or uh, Yeah, I think so. Say, I, I didn't know if they would be looking for that really fit because corn compared to soybean. Soybeans don't have pods on them yet, so it's just green leaves. Right. So I'd say that corn's probably a much fattier food source. But as far as uh, when you came to Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife, you said last September, right? Yeah. And you were kind of brought on as part of that CWD surveillance zone response team, right? Right. I was brought on as their first wildlife disease biologist. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, It was really neat. They tried hiring me on in the early summer, had some different difficulties with logistics. Um, Some of my credits, uh, education credits wasn't going through. Um, And finally, when CWD uh, was a major threat to Kentucky, and they had to activate the response plan. They were able to hire me on immediately. I got you. So your first bit of work you were doing was down in that area. Correct. Yep, I was field stationed out there until January. And what I mean, just as a recap, basically what happened last year? Give me like the whole recap, starting with Tennessee. Yeah. Um, so Tennessee detected CWD within eight miles of our border. Um, And once they released that, we needed to activate our response plan because it was within 30 miles of our state border. Um, So with that, we activated 17 check stations. We had those out during early muzzleloader, modern gun, and late muzzleloader. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the tornado um, didn't allow us to do check stations with late muzzleloader, but it did allow us to do a lot of response and relief efforts um, for tornado victims and in those areas. Because we already had a lot of staff down there. Right. Um, yeah, we had people directing traffic, um, removing trees, clearing roadways. So that was actually a really great it's opportunity. Not, and it just happened to work out great that we had a, a big presence there already. And I know engineering and law enforcement and a couple other divisions sent more people down, kind of like we're doing right now with the, the flood relief in eastern Kentucky. Engineering crews are down there and Law enforcement's been pretty active. I think a lot of department staff has, but especially those two divisions because they have the equipment and the resources to really make an impact. So the check stations last year, um, well, well, first of all, there were 17 and you said the last weekend of late muzzleloader, you know, the tornado obviously came through, but something I've heard a lot about is statistically significant or statistically valid. So were we able to get the sample numbers that we needed last year? Oh yeah. We were able to get those numbers within the first weekend of modern gun. So how are those numbers determined? Because basically 
you know, I might be I might be jumping the gun and going too far ahead here because I'm thinking ahead. I'm thinking to the freezer drop offs, right? That are mm-hmm. statewide. And how many CWD samples do we need to get? Um, you know, in different because in some counties it's different. Like Fayette County, for instance, we need a different number of samples than we do in Marshall County. So my mind goes to why. Mm-hmm. You know, what what drives the, the number of samples that we need to get to feel good about the efforts that we're doing? Yeah, so basically we create quotas for each county, and that's dependent on the number and um, extent of risk for each county. So that's going to be, is it a county um, border? Does it border our state? Um, is it? Our state board on our state border. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a captive servant facility in there? Um, things like that. Uh, and then that'll determine how much we want to sample or get CWD samples in that county. And so last year we were statistically significant. We were valid in all those counties. Um, definitely in our surveillance zone, uh, just due to limited staffing and the limited number of deer we have in our eastern uh, end of the state, we weren't able to reach those quotas, but we're certain that we will this year. And, you know, I saw, because we went out on elk trip last year for the show, and we tagged along with uh, Joe McDermott, mm-hmm. and he was collecting CWD samples right. from elk, which I, I'm assuming because cervids, you know, the deer and the elk kind of intermingle, that those those samples would kind of give us an idea, too, if it was on the landscape in that area. Yeah, and our elk are so valuable to us that we definitely need to keep testing in those that population, mm-hmm. too. So what, and I already made mention of the fact that baiting's banned right now, but last year we, as you said, we, you know, activated those 17 check stations in those five counties. We had mandatory check stations for early muzzleloader modern firearm season and late muzzleloader season, which kind of got a little bit of a wrench thrown in it. Um, What samples were taken? So how many were taken total and they all came back negative, right? Yep, all came back negative, and that was, I think, a little under 3,500 in the five-county surveillance zone. And that was about half of what we had statewide? Yes, uh, we collected over 7,000 statewide. Okay, and so this year, the one thing I just want to get to off the bat, we can, you know, small talk all we want, but one thing that's really important is for people to know what, what is legal and what's expected this year. So as of right now, what's going on with CWD in the state of Kentucky? Um, we're pretty much uh, acting the same this year. So no baiting, um, no bringing carcasses, full carcasses, uh, brain, spinal cord outside of the surveillance zone. The only thing different is because is you're not going to be required a special carcass tag. Not, not required zone. a special carcass tag. And when you say no, the, the baiting ban is only in the surveillance zone. Correct. So if you're in one of those five counties you mentioned earlier, you can't put grain on the ground, no corn, no mineral blocks, no nothing like nothing that. Nothing that will aggregate deer. And that's exactly why we're doing it that way for our trail cameras for the show. And then you mentioned the carcass transportation ban. Now, that, that could be a little bit confusing for people because there's actually kind of like two carcass bans in place. Right. We kind of have the statewide one which is different than the one that we have for the surveillance zone. Right. And the only big difference is um, to bring carcasses into the state from outside of the state, um, it has to be either deboned or quartered. Mm -hmm. Um, For the surveillance zone, it has to be deboned. And that's to leave the surveillance zone. Correct. So it's kind of like to come into the state deboned or quartered so basically mm-hmm. no no brain or no spinal no tissue. not anywhere and that's to come into the state from another state so if you go out to colorado and go on an elk hunt and you harvest an, an elk then you need to have that skull capped and and either quartered or deboned before you can bring it back correct clean skulls are absolutely fine antlers but if you're hunting in mm-hmm. one of those five counties in western kentucky to, to just go across let's just say marshall county into 
say you live in Todd County. I, I don't know my county map. I have county maps right here. <laughs> Christian could, Trigg. Yeah, yeah Trigg. Any of those border counties, right. out of those five counties, it has to be deboned. Yes. Which is actually a step further than than just bringing a, a servant into Correct. the state from outside. Unless it's um, finished taxidermist product or clean skull plate, um, antlers, uh, regarding regarding meat, it has to be deboned. And there's a good, I debone a, most of the deer that I harvest in the field just because it's easier. Like yeah. one of the things I do to try to get access, because I, I mean, I don't have a lot of money. I can't pay somebody for a lease. So right. what I try to do is make the landowner as happy as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And one thing that tends to make landowners happy is not disturbing their property, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like leave no trace. Yeah. So I don't drive, you know, four wheelers or ATVs or trucks like all over their landscape. So wherever I park my vehicle is typically where it stays parked. So I typically just leave a cooler in my truck. And if I do get a deer, then I'll walk back to my truck while I'm waiting that half an hour, one hour to make sure it's, you know, before I go find it. And then I'll walk back in with my cooler, completely debone it, and then walk out with just a cooler and leave a carcass on the landscape. Yeah. It's, it's really not that hard to debone a deer. And it's something you're going to have to do anyway, unless you're taking it to a processor. So uh, we will need the head though. So, oh yeah. But when will you need the head? Cause that's a good, that's something that if it's during mandatory checks season. So during those weekends of modern gun, um, so the first Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the second Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then for the third weekend, just Saturday, Sunday, um, we will have mandatory check stations. So you will have to bring um, either your field dressed deer, full deer, um, or even just the head. And that's something we hadn't hit on yet, so we should probably clarify, because we talked about last year. And last year, there were those 17 mandatory check stations for the muzzleloader seasons and all of modern firearm. Right. This year, it's what you just said. Right. Which yeah. is, I think we even reduced the number of check stations, right? Yeah, we're down to 13 check stations. We took just the most popular ones um, because some we didn't really get a lot of foot traffic. Uh, so this will just um, reduce the number of staffing we need. Um, and it'll just be modern gun weekends. Um, so as I said, it's, uh, mm. Saturday through Monday, Saturday through Monday. And then that last weekend's just Saturday and Sunday. And when you say Saturday through Monday, but we also say only weekends or if somebody, you know, we're obviously last year we went over on Mondays after the season mm -hmm. ended, you know, not expecting anybody to be out harvesting a deer on that Monday with firearm, but we were leaving them open for people who might have harvested one late Sunday night right. and just couldn't make it in time. So they can bring it on that Monday. Are people who harvest deer on Mondays of modern firearm this season in the CWD zone expected to bring their deer or is that kind of for people who harvest it on Sundays? No, but it is for Mondays too. Okay. Um, so we expect them to bring them in before 7 p.m., which is when our check stations will close. So if you hunt in one of those five counties and you harvest a deer on a Saturday, Sunday, or Monday of modern firearm season, then check stations are for you. Exactly. But if you're <clears throat> harvested deer outside of those three days or I guess in total it would be... Eight eight total days during the hunting season. If you harvest a deer outside of those eight total days, then you aren't required to bring it to a check station, but there are still some options. Right, yeah. So we have um, freezer drop-off locations across our entire state and multiple um, within our surveillance zone. And you can get your deer tested. You just have to drop off the head, submit a couple, little bit of information to us, um, and we'll get that tested for you for free. And the, the, the test results are a big one. I know we, we did a... I'm going to jump around again. We did a, a, a hunt down there in the yeah. zone last year for the TV show, and we filmed it during modern firearm season, and then it never aired. So we are going to air that this year. And, you know, part of what we'll highlight is the fact that you get a little business card with a five-digit number on it. Mm -hmm. And that's you'll kind of get the same type number if you take your deer to a freezer drop-off location. 
Right. Right. So when you show up to a CWD check station in person, once they take your sample, they give you a business card with a number that you can go to the website and look up your results. And if you just take your deer head to a freezer and stick it in there, we have one right up front here, like 200 yards from here. There's one of these freezers. There are going to be some cards, you know, like when you go to a a Catholic church picnic and they're Mm -hmm. doing the raffles and they tear off the ticket and you keep one and they keep one. And then if you win, you have to check your number. It's kind of like that. It's like a little tear card where you attach one to your deer sample and you take the other one with you. And then you can go look up your results with that number later on on the website. So it's a good way to get your deer tested for CWD, which is something you should probably want to know if it has. It provides good data for the state to be able to monitor the herd. But I think we also age the deer, right? Yep. We will age every deer that we get. And a lot of people are curious. You know, people like to speculate about how old a deer is or how old a deer isn't. And people argue back and forth. So that at least give you a hard number, right? Yep. And it helps us uh, really estimate the population, see how everything's looking. And there's a lot of info on the CWD surveillance zone or the CWD web page in general. Yep. It's still going through updates. We're still adding more content, but it's a really great resource. You know, that's probably important to talk about, too, is all of this. Like what we're saying right now is accurate right now as far as these are the dates Mm -hmm. for the check stations. These are the five counties. These are the restrictions. Um, It's accurate right this second. But how fluid is it? Uh, extremely fluid. As soon as we either detect CWD in the state, um, detect it within 30 miles in another area, either Tennessee or any other other border states, will create another surveillance zone. Yeah. So this is all stuff that could change. It's not going to change unless something happens, which if something happening would pretty much be a positive case of CWD somewhere yep. in the state or close to the state. But if that happens, then everything we're saying right now could change. Yeah, right. Correct. So say we get... And there's really no way to be able to tell people how it would change either, right? No, it is extremely adaptive. It just depends on where it pops up, at what time of the year. Um, That'll really let us know what we can do about it. Where, when, everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many different It could be a captive servant. It could be a free-ranging, anything. So I wonder, what is the best? Say somebody really wants to just be in the loop. Because we try to get information out there. We push it out there hard. I think we do a pretty good job as far as... Last year in the CWD surveillance zone, people all over the state won't realize this, that we communicated those restrictions and the requirements and kind of we, we CWD communications to that surveillance zone were hot and heavy for a while there, right? And we surveyed people when they came up and they turned their deer in. How did you hear about this? Yeah. And we had a whole list of options. And it, the number of people who said, oh, I heard about it from this, 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 and name off like five or six different ways they heard about it. So yeah. we really communicated that. But say somebody wanted to just know where to go for the most current information. Is, would that be our website, you think? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, f- ky.ky.fw.gov. Fw.ky.gov. Yeah. Sorry. Slash CWD. I've got so used to typing it and saying it. I have to write it to read it off. But Well, sometimes people don't think it's a website. Sometimes I'll put www just like, yes, this is actually a website fw.ky.gov and i'm sure the department's social media pages are because mm-hmm. as soon as if something happens i'm sure that we'll be it'll be out us, so. immediately and you know speaking of deboning is your deboning video that you and chad did is it available it's, it's on youtube you can go and it's on the website also yep, we so if you go to there. those cwd pages there's a lot of video resources and i think the deboning videos there but you can also yep. just if you get on that's YouTube, really well done yeah it yeah. is we we that was one that i thought turned out pretty well i think we are well, actually, made it simple you know and you know last year debone meat wasn't required that's actually more of a requirement this year mm-hmm. than it was last year so i right. think we're going to try to 
we're going to kick around the idea of running it on the show. Um, you know, there's a little bit of, is it too graphic for TV? I don't think that was an extremely graphic video. I mean, we do debone an entire deer, so you, you pretty much have to get through that. But we, um, you know, it's not it's not too bad in my opinion. Given the audience, I don't think it's that graphic. Well, you'd be surprised at our audience. <laughs> Sometimes, I <laughs> mean, good. there's a lot of people who watch the TV show who don't hunt. Um, yes. Or fish or anything. They just like stuff about Kentucky. I yeah, I like to learn that. about the state of Kentucky, so... We have a, you know, we, we get feedback emails and there are probably some people out there who wouldn't appreciate it. But the question to me having to make that decision is, um, we'll get a few emails from people who didn't like it, but at the same time is the value of giving that information worth getting a little bit of negative feedback. And to pushback. help with disease prevention, I just don't see, you know, seems Absolutely. like a pretty, yeah, you know, disease, good trade-off. And, you know, people, even if you aren't a deer hunter and you, I mean, it's still just a, a part of reality. If you only eat beef, guess what? This is pretty similar mm -hmm. to, oh, yeah. to how your beef. They do it in a factory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's. You it all, comes wrapped in plastic. Do you all ever watch that show alone? Have you ever watched that? Uh, a few times. Well, there's, you know, they always talk about there's people like the, a lady we went hunting with a few years ago for the show, Megan Martin. She uh, she wasn't a hunter and she was on the verge of becoming vegan altogether mm -hmm. and or going vegetarian and then. She, you know, went through the thought process and realized that hunting for your own meat, you know, was the healthier, more sustainable and more honest way to go about doing Ethical, it. Right? Yeah. And I completely agree. But watching Alone the other day, which is a great show, I would highly suggest watching it. Mm -hmm. There was a lady on there and, you know, a lot of times people who haven't had to hunt to survive and in the show they do. I mean, they're literally living in the wilderness. Um, you know, she like I think she killed a squirrel or something like that. And she kind of had this long monologue about how she felt about killing a squirrel. But in the end, you know, she felt bad about it. But in the end, it circled back to, you know, everybody is responsible for, you know, if you eat meat, then this is a part of reality. And this is just the more honest way to do it. And I completely agree with that. So did she eat the squirrel? Oh, yeah. I mean, she, she had to eat that squirrel. Like, this show, this, I mean, they literally are out there like near the Arctic Circle and very, very rough conditions and it's basically they drop 10 people off and they give them gopros and cameras mm -hmm. and they self-film themselves and it's basically the last person standing who either doesn't tap out or doesn't have to get medically you know removed from the competition doesn't have size 16 boots yeah <laughs> i would be i would be in bad shape on that show in general because i burn i would burn through so many calories i'd never be able to you know and most people on that show lose 50 60 70 pounds while that's they're why out the there. inuit you know have their, their diet you know oh yeah yeah it's but, just a, i had an uncle live in alaska and yes i've been above the arctic circle Really? I flew into Yukon City on a plane. That's neat. We flew over the Big Barrel Range, and it's amazing to fly for hours and see no roads, no telephone poles, no power lines, no houses, yeah. nothing. And then there's this little city that looks like God dropped it from 30,000 feet, and it lands on the That's Yukon so River. Cool. We, it was uh, 45 degrees on June 16th. That's pretty I cool. forget it. It was cool. And on that same trip, uh, I caught a 56-pound Chinook King. Really? Sandy, yes. you know, 50 inches long. I've got a picture of it in my – so if you're down by the cube, I'll show it to you. I've been so amped up about wanting to go salmon fishing lately because I, I don't it know. It was awesome. I would love to go. And I don't – I mean, it seems like there's a lot of restrictions. I watched a video last night where they were fishing Salmon River in New York, 
And it's that thing you've seen basically where you got somebody every five feet, you know, mm-hmm. for the opening day of salmon season, the salmon runs on, and you literally have people stacked in there like sardines mm-hmm. fishing for these salmon. And that doesn't seem super appealing to me, but it's beautiful and catching those fish. Well, and we were drifting down the uh, Kenai River. I'd like to go. Have you considered Katmai? What is it? Katmai National Park. Mm-hmm. Where they, you're right next to all the bears. They're getting the salmon. Oh, you're yeah. getting the salmon. No one bothers each other. I think I have seen. It's, um, you know, you just always see those pictures of the salmon popping up and the deer <laughs> and the bear, are all. And the bear grabbing them. And yeah. <laughs> and then the fishermen right behind them. Now, is this, um, I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a park called, it's like Gateway to the Arctic or something like that. Well, you know that famous, you know, there's like a waterfall. You always see the video and the pictures yeah. of where you got the grizzlies standing up there and right. the salmon are jumping up into their mouth. Well, you don't see it in those in those photos and videos because it looks so remote and beautiful. But just out of view of all those photos and videos you see is like a catwalk and a boardwalk that yeah. goes out there and tourists like with all their cameras, you know, taking pictures. And it's a very touristy spot. Yep. And that's kind of like the last bit of civilization before you get deep into this park, yeah. which takes you all the way up through the the mountains and into the true arctic so i was wondering if that might be the same location you're talking about katmai is the very southwest peninsula of alaska mm-hmm. okay. it's like almost it's in line with canada I've never um, been, so. but that's where they have all the the bear tournaments each year which is the fattest bear and then there's the winner and bear. The, everyone loves those bears yeah how close is it to homer I honestly have no idea. Okay. I know that's kind of at the beginning of that area. Yeah, I don't know. Time-wise. Man, we got off topic there. It happens. I wish I was fishing, salmon fishing right now. It's cool. This time of year. Speaking of fishing, I appreciate you guys. We were supposed to do this tomorrow, but you all were both very flexible and worked around my demanding schedule. And uh, tomorrow I'm probably going fishing. So that's why we had to to change it. You know, I have... um, Where are you going? Probably head out to Cape Run try to catch a muskie one of my good friends bobby one he's been a buddy of mine for forever he uh he texted me and asked me if i wanted to go muskie fishing this week out on cave run and this is something we i I love to fish with him every chance i get so when he hit me up i was like yeah sure let's do it and we're supposed to go yesterday i was getting everything ready tuesday night and he uh called me and said hey we got a problem he said, uh, I just realized this boat's registration is expired. So, and he couldn't, and it had lapsed. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't renew it online. He had to actually go to the clerk's office. So uh, I was like, Bob, <laughs> man, that's a pretty small problem. But uh, he got his boat re-registered yesterday. So it looks like tomorrow's our day. So cool. I, I reached out to you all and asked if you mind if we move the podcast. And in all honesty, that's why. It's because I don't want to miss the opportunity to be able to go musky fishing. Well, I don't okay. blame you. I, I probably won't catch me. anything, but, you know. This is the I, only department where we're like, we understand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the old days, uh, it was mandated you could take one day off a month to hunt or fish. That's really? Cool. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Get that back. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, you know, it's as long as your work's getting done around yeah. here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, well, they did it so you would know what you're talking about, you know. I think that's very important. And that's something we do with the TV show. You know, like some of the producers that we have here haven't. I mean, aren't the most experienced people who hunt and fish in the world, but, you know, they're good with camera and they, they have a passion for the outdoors, but to build a segment and to be able to communicate, okay, let's say it's a technique driven segment. You need to be able to teach the audience how to do this. Well, you need to be able to do it yourself. So a lot of times on a shoot, say they catch the five or six fish they need to, to make a TV segment out of it. 
Chad will tell me, hey, you know, put that camera down and pick this rod up. And they'll fish and they'll they'll experience the technique and get to do it themselves. And then I think that results in a better product as far as, you know, the video being able to teach people because they really understand what they're talking about. So I think there's value in, in taking part in whatever it is that you're trying to teach people how to do. You know, it just makes sense. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. I, I would be all on board for us getting a day off each month to do hunting or fishing. So. <laughs> But I did <laughs> something else that kind of got me amped up for deer season is actually keeping a muskie the other day. That's something I told you I wanted to do, Lee. Is uh, did you cut it into steaks? I, um, no, you're talking about staking it out like mm-hmm. vertically. Yeah. I did not do that. I, you know, it's a wide bone fish, so I filleted it out. And the the amount of meat I got off of it, though, and I don't know if I'll keep another muskie for a long time. But uh, the amount of meat I got off this muskie was really impressive. And as I was sitting there in my kitchen, you know, cutting it up and and vacuum sealing it and everything, it felt like deer season to me, you know, Mm -hmm. because most fish, I don't, it's not like I have, you know, a a whole assembly line of process laid out on my kitchen table to to get it to go from, you know, deboned or fleshed out meat to having to package it and vacuum seal it and label it and that's what i had to do with that muskie so it just made me feel like man i'm almost like i was cleaning a deer or something like that and it's almost even more so because muskie fishing is more like hunting than any type of fishing i've ever done so people would have to experience it to understand that but it, it really does feel like you're hunting you now you go out there and say you're largemouth fishing and you see a largemouth bass that doesn't really do anything for you does it Lee? Uh, not sometimes but usually that means <laughs> yeah good luck yeah if you go out there and you, <laughs> you, you go out there and you see a muskie it's like you just saw a big buck you know like mm-hmm. a, oh i saw a, a 150 ran across and that field. doesn't kill you with them correct you may be able to catch that fish you saw oh correct? yeah you just go back circle back i don't i'm not a muskie expert by any means you know like i i can go out and catch them i've only caught one fish out of a lake ever though all, most of the muskies I catch have been out of streams and rivers, so to catch one out of a lake would be fun. And I think you got potential for maybe bigger fish mm-hmm. out of the lake. So we'll go give it a try. They're pulling the lake pretty hard right now, so you know that can That's, be yeah, difficult. Falling water is tough on streams, tough on a reservoir. It's just tough. It's only dropping a half a foot a day right now, though, which isn't horrible. Yeah. For the amount of rain that we've gotten, I'm mm-hmm. kind of surprised they're only doing that. You know, and thinking about all the, the people down in East Kentucky, our thoughts are with them, and, yeah. you know, a lot of the places along Troublesome Creek and 476 were very, very elemental in, in the elk restoration. I've plowed a lot of that ground down there. Yeah. And seeing areas I'm f- intimately familiar with, such destruction has been uh, difficult. Yeah, most of the areas that I'm familiar with in East Kentucky, I'm familiar with because of either elk or bear, one of the two. Hmm. Um, a few years ago in Eastern Kentucky, 2017 or 2018, this is something I've wanted to hit on too. Um, HD, you know, what, what, what is the full term for HD? Uh, hemorrhagic disease. Okay. And it used to be called EHD. Uh, epi- Episodic. Epi- Epizootic yep. hemorrhagic <laughs> disease. And that's really when you, what you call it up north where it's less common. So this, a lot of people like, because it used to be so referred to as EHD, I think a lot of people, you know, in general public, HD, EHD. It's Either kinda, is totally fine. Yeah. Why do some people call it blue tongue? Uh, because there's a, another strain of it um, that's Does it more affect cattle. Yes, it's more common in um, sheep, goats, cattle. So, you know, I see a lot of, and the reason I brought that up with Eastern Kentucky is because they got hit by HD pretty hard a few mm-hmm. years ago, and that's kind of when we redid our zones. You know, mm-hmm. as far as zone four, the restrictions. Um, 
you know, uh, female deer or antlerless deer only with archery equipment. You know, we redid a lot of stuff back then. But what is the difference in hemorrhagic disease and CWD? Because I think there's a lot of confusion. And I think a lot of people in the general public are more worried about hemorrhagic disease than they are CWD. And if you really look at it, that doesn't make sense. But from like, you know, at a glance, I can see how they would think. Right. So hemorrhagic disease is in your face instantly. Um, These midges emerge Mm -hmm. um, and they're infected and they will uh, bite the deer, mostly by waterways. Um, Those deer will die right away and you will see those carcasses in water. And there will be multiple deer in one area, which is scary to the public. Mm, They think this is an immediate threat, but those deer rebound. And the ones that don't die, they build a resistance to it. So ultimately, your deer population becomes resistant to it. um, And we see it's not as big of an issue down south where it's Mm -hmm. more. It's been there for a longer time. Chronic wasting disease, there is no resistance. They do not build up immunity. um, And all of them die when they become infected. So there's, yeah. So now, correct me if I'm wrong with EHD, you said usually near water and midges. Now, drought years kind of yeah, bring so on HD because it has something to do with the mud. Right. Yeah. So midges are more likely to um, hatch when there's drought and the water uh, level lowers. So we got pretty lucky with this rain the past couple of weeks. Right. Um, we're worried about Western Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky, yeah. Uh, well, we oh, you Western? Because it's dry. Western because we haven't been seeing a lot of rain. A second ago when I said that we got lucky with this rain, I was, I immediately clicked to me that, you know, we didn't necessarily get lucky with the mm-hmm. amount of rain we had. But in terms of uh, HD, hemorrhagic disease, you know, we were on the verge of something statewide there until the rain came. Right. And brought the waterways up. But in western Kentucky, you're saying it's still Right. Concerned. Yep. We have not seen that amount of rain. Um, and we've seen a bit of drought conditions. So we're a bit worried. So things mm-hmm. I've heard, this is kind of going to be like Mythbusters here where you yeah. might tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. So things I've heard before is that let's just say a doe, a female deer gets hemorrhagic disease. She gets mm-hmm. bit by that mid. She gets it. She survives it. Mm-hmm. And typically they're dead within 72 hours, right? Right. So if they're going to die, they'll it's typically quick. die pretty quick. And those are the ones you see near water, you know, lapping up water, not afraid of people. From what yep. I understand, their organs kind of shut down and they feel like they're overheating and that's why they go to water. Yep. Um, still good body condition, but they'll be seeking water and then die. And then, so if she survives mm-hmm. HD, I, from what I've heard, she now has some immunity to it, some antibodies. I'm not sure if that's right. Right. But she can pass that down a generation too. Yep, absolutely. So her fawns would then also have some antibodies to it. Yep. So you kind of get this cyclical thing where you get that generation that originally got it has some immunity and then they pass it down a generation and then maybe that third generation when that fawn starts to have offspring, then we're at risk for another HD breakout. Right. And immunity will wane, um, but the outbreaks won't be as severe. So people, I think, are so concerned with hemorrhagic disease as opposed to CWD because it's visible and it's on the landscape. And they can walk out of their pond and maybe see two or three dead deer in a bad year. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, is in, it's their, frightening. It's in their face and devastating. And I've seen that before, too. And I've, man, but what, but we aren't putting the efforts towards hemorrhagic disease that we are CWD, right? And you are, you, you said that CWD is always fatal. You know, once they get it, they got it. The most terrifying thing about CWD to me is the fact that it lives on the landscape. I think that's the worst part about it. 
Right. So even if we remove all of the infected deer from an area, those prions or the disease-causing yeah. agent will sit in the soil for over two years. That's right. Okay. That I was wondering what the life of Over was. two years, we see with the scrapey, the goat and sheep version of it, over 10 years. Yeah. See, that's... I remember when CWD was first bandied about, some people were like, it could be 10 years, but th they were basing on scraping. I'm good to know it's, I think a lot of people still think it's that long. I mean, it very well could be. It we could just be. know for sure over two years. I know that they did an experiment one time with a CWD positive deer in a pen, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that deer died in that pen, mm -hmm. and no other deer were in the pen. <clears throat> and they left that dead deer in that pen to completely decompose and they left it there for a number of years. And I think by the end of it, its bones were just, you know, bleach white from the mm -hmm. sun. And then they reintroduced deer to that pen years and years and years later. Mm -hmm. And every one of the deer that got introduced to that pen got CWD and died. Yeah. Mm. So after two and a half years after that deer decomposed, they brought in more deer. Yeah. Oh, wow. Those deer got infected. See, that's what terrifies me about CWD is the fact that, you know, it's, it's just, if you get it, it seems like it's going to be really, really hard to get rid of. But it has happened before. There's only been two cases, one in New York where um, they found a captive uh, cervid facility that had a few infected deer um, and two of those escaped. And they called all the deer in the immediate surrounding area of that facility, I think removed three infected wild deer from that area and they didn't see any more CWD. So they removed them before they died on the landscape then. Exactly. So they were able to get the... Newly infected, we assume, um, before they started um, shedding and transmitting it to all the other deer, they were able to nip it in the bud. So, and that's very uncommon. But that's kind of the best case scenario is to get at it quickly. Absolutely. So that's why everybody always says that early detection is key. Absolutely. And that's why we have mandatory check stations. And mm -hmm. that's why. So that's kind of the whole reason for everything. You look at how, give me an, you know, you don't want to call people out. Give me an example. So that's an example of when they had early detection and they got on top of it real quick and in a hurry yeah. and they were able to control it. And that's best case scenario. Yeah. Worst case scenario is it's on your landscape for 10 years before you realize it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it started in the Midwest in the Wisconsin-Illinois border area. Uh, we assume that it was in a Wisconsin captive herd for many years um, and then spread out to the free-ranging deer multiple years before they actually detected it. You know, no one was looking at that point. It was just in Colorado and Wyoming. Why would we be testing across the country? Um, and then by the time that they found it, it was, I think, 2 to 3% pre prevalence in that area. Um, and they tried to do an eradication um, uh, management attempt to remove all the deer in that area. There was some public pu pushback because communication um, wasn't all there, um, and the hunters were very concerned about it. This is completely new to them. Um, so they had to end all of their deer removal um, exercises, and it just exploded. We have over 50% prevalence in those areas now. Wow. Saskatchewan, there's over 80% prevalence in their adult bucks. Really? Oh, man. So eight out of 10 deer that you harvest in your lifetime are going to be infected. And adult bucks, especially. Oh, yeah. And uh, now earlier, I wish I had a clear picture of how I wanted to do this today. But earlier we were talking about statistical significance and we kind of rate our samples on a point system right mm -hmm. so one sample is not the, of the same value 
to us as another sample is. And from what I understand, adult bucks are the highest, like the most valuable sample. Yep. So they're more likely to have the disease. So we would have to, we don't have to look as hard if we're looking at the adult bucks in an area. So they're given um, what we call 1.5 points Uh for their sample, whereas um, does are just given one point. So if you have like a county, let's just say for I don't, you might have these numbers off the top of your head let's just say callaway county yeah. if the quota for callaway county county is how many points uh so we give those 300 points so we need 300 points for callaway county mm-hmm. now that's either 300 does or that's 200 bucks i right. mean if you look at it that way so the buck because and they're more valuable because they're more social yeah we assume it's because of their rut and breeding behaviors they try they cover more ground they, they, like interact, they interact with more deer yeah. So that makes sense why if you have it in the area, a buck is more likely to show you whether it's there or not than a doe is. But a doe is still very valuable. So. Oh, yeah. Um, so why don't we have the same management practices for hemorrhagic disease that we do for CWD? Uh, hemorrhagic disease, it's going to be over and done with by the time we detect it. Yeah. Mm. 72 um, hours right. from the midge bite. What, can, is there anything we could do about the Yeah, that's what I wanted. Is there anything preventive measure? I am starting to look into if landowners can maybe um, do some habitat work, uh, especially with ponds. But really, it's you can't really affect water levels, yeah. um, habitat around those ponds. If there's a drought season, the midges are just going to emerge. Yeah. It's kind of like a natural part of the landscape, something that should be... I mean, it ebbs and flows. It's here every year. Has there ever been a year in the past 10 years where we haven't had hemorrhagic disease? At least a handful. I Not that I'm yeah. aware of. So you get these cyclical years where it's worse than some than others because of herd immunity haven't gone down. You get worse droughts. Maybe you put those two things together. You might get a really bad year, but there's really not a whole lot that can be done to prevent it or to help those deer if they do get it right. And in all of reality, getting it might be some deer's best best chance. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we'll get that immunity. And the whole idea for of a wild I mean, us humans are a little different, but in the wild the whole purpose is to reproduce, right? I mean that's kinda of what everything's driven towards. Yeah. Well, if you have you can pass down that those antibodies, then you're kind of doing a better job mm-hmm. at you know Absolutely. creating a stronger offspring. Um, let's see, I want to look is, through my notes. Is uh H D natural? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it's from those no seams, right? Yeah. Yep. That's what people call them. Yeah. They're little biting midges. Oh, I hate them. I've always heard them referred to as no seams because you don't see them. You just feel the bite and you look and you, if you get lucky, you might see the smallest little insect you've ever seen. I've killed them. How does that thing bite that hard? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a spring peeper. How's that little bitty fog make such a big noise? (laughs) (laughs) I saw a video yesterday of a single ant, a little ant. And it was fighting with this huge centipede, mm-hmm. right? And the centipede was like a million times the size of the ant. That ant was winning. <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I mean, dragging the centipede with his hundreds of legs all over the ground. I was like, man, that is just amazing. I don't even know how I got it. I always, uh, this tiny little midge making such a big bite. It's crazy how strong this little insect mm-hmm. are. I know. What are your future plans for the deer herd other than protect it from CWD? Right, protect it from CWD. Um really just making sure densities are at good levels. Um, We have really high densities in central and western areas of the state. Um, So making sure the population is stable um, and really chronic wasting disease is our biggest concern right now. Did you say high levels or what was it? Yeah, we have high density levels. Where where do you want them? Um, 
We prefer around 20 deer per mile 20. squared. 20. I, I think I'd heard before 35 per mile square, which is 635 acres, I believe. I think so. I think I think a square mile is right around 630, 650 yeah. acres, something like mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's all relative, but it's usually around that number. Yeah, and here and like right now, we're in Franklin County, and you know, kind of this general area plus Western Kentucky, like you said, too many deer. Right, and that's, and just that, north is Owen County, which is you know, a, right, a whole bunch deer paradise for songs I can remember. And unfortunately, we're limited with what we can do. Yeah. Hunters will only remove so many deer in a year. What's the average? Like one point three or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's low. Average hunter takes one point three deer yearly. Well, yeah, you know, they always say there's there's you know. Hunting bag limits and there's freezer capacity. There's yeah. freezer oh, bag limits, you know. Yeah, maybe the rising meat prices in the grocery well, stores will. I know. I know most people I've talked to who are deer hunters. Now these people all take more than one deer anyway, but they're saying they're taking an extra deer this year. Mm -hmm. um, I'll deer chili is good. You know. Oh, yeah. No, I mean there's a lot, and hunters for the hungry is always an option too. You mm -hmm. get four tags on your statewide license. You know, yeah. might as well use them. So especially when all you got to do is go and drop it off at, you know, a processor and right. uh, donate it even if you don't want it. So yeah, one thing about the prion, there's pretty much no way to kill it on the landscape. But no. one of the things I heard a long time ago, and it may be bunk, <laughs> was you could spray bleach. But on the landscape, that's pretty much so an impracticality. Bleach will work on stainless steel surfaces, non-porous surfaces. Um, so that helps when you're cleaning your kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, you have a, a better chance of removing those prions or deactivating them. Um, but you obviously can't do that in the soil. Yeah. Um, so it, won't, it wouldn't work on the landscape. No. There's, they say that freeze-thaw cycles help with um, deactivating prions, but we can't control that. When you're talking obviously. about a prion, you're talking about CWD. Yes. That's chronic the disease, disease agent for chronic wasting disease. Yeah. yeah. It's really, you know, we talked earlier about how it lives on the landscape when we gave that pen example. I've heard that the hottest forest fire ever recorded in the world, which I think was in Russia, it was like... 14,000 degrees or something like that mm -hmm. wouldn't have killed it. So the hottest, really? hottest fire that's ever burned on well, Earth. will not kill the prime. No, like, you need a really good incinerator and no one, no one's going to have yeah, that I mean, on yeah. hand. Well, we can get rid of CWD if we burn the entire state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That I don't, I don't think that'll, that, that'll, that'll, that'll It would be one of the way. few things that survive. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's as bad as it gets right Or there. spray bleach over the entire state. I, I think, think, I think it spraying is. bleach on the surface would get those surface ones, but I think what she's saying is that you would have to soak yeah. the ground in bleach. Yeah. And <laughs> it would have to be 50% concentration at the very minimum. And it's impossible. But there there was some discussions that when CWD first uh, arrived. Also, maybe give the... The, the, the listeners a primer of, of the origins of CWD. I mean, we've hit this before, but I don't think people realize the disease vector and how, how it works. Right. Um, so it's strongly believed that it came from a research center um, in the northern border of Colorado um, in Wyoming. Uh, they had sheepy with, sheep with scrapie in the facility. Um, they cleared that facility, removed all the animals, um, and then they had an open research facility, of course, so they threw some deer in there a few years later. Um, and after a while, they started seeing these sick deer. You know, they were just wasting away, and for the longest time, they had no idea why. Um, by the time that they figured out what it was, it was already in the free-ranging deer and in that northern Colorado, southern Wyoming area. I'm not a fan of that. I don't like that. Um, movement from these captive 
um, facilities, facilities is was the disease vector that allowed it to right. Explode, there's there's correct? no other way that it would pop up in the uh, uh, Dakota, Saskatchewan, Wisconsin area from Colorado, Wyoming. Uh, don't I mean you could have had a hunter who harvested a deer. That's absolutely that true. Positive. That's why we have our restrictions on bringing deer into the state absolutely. is because if you go out to one of those places and harvest a deer that's positive, you bring its brain or spinal tissue back and then throw dump, it out on your back 40, then you've just introduced CWD to your landscape. Right. So, so we know that and it traveled all the way to South Korea through a captive uh, live animal. South Korea. Oh, wow. um, Alberta, I believe it was Alberta Zoo. They took in a, a CWD positive animal. Um, and now they have it exploding in their wild population. Um, so it could be either way. To be devil's advocate, you know, there's a little bit of belief that it's just a matter of time. Do you believe that or do you think that we can if we continue Kentucky? vigilance, we can keep it out? Unfortunately, I think it's too far advanced throughout Tennessee um, or at least western Tennessee um, for us to not allow it in our state. Yeah. Well, we it's in you said we we point to Tennessee, six border states have it. Mm -hmm. So that would be every border state other than Indiana mm -hmm. confirmed has it. Right. And there's a chance Indiana has it too. You right. know, they don't have it confirmed. Right. So Tennessee to me when I look at the state of Kentucky is you know, the most vulnerable border mm -hmm. because we're lucky to have this nice big mile wide Ohio River all along mm -hmm. the north and west and then even on the eastern border we have which river out there, Big Sandy? Well, Big Sandy, and then the, the headwaters of the Cumberland, the headwaters of the Kentucky. And plus, um, we got the Appalachians, and and the yeah, the natural barrier of, of mountains. So, if you're just looking at that's that's why they built Fort Knox here, right? It's because Kentucky is naturally such a fortified area, except for that southern border. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of like, it, and it's it's so close, eight miles away. I mean, Noel had given us some stats before on you know, typically time frame as far as when a positive would be expected after it's found within a certain distance. And Kentucky's done well so far, I would say. And we, it's not, you know, I've heard the whole thing before. It's hard to find something if you're not looking for it. As far as mm -hmm. some other states and being CWD negative, they aren't necessarily putting forth the effort to find it. And that's why they probably don't have it. But I feel like we've done pretty well mm -hmm. as far as looking for it. We overachieved in that um, CWD surveillance zone. We, I think, doubled the amount of points that we originally wanted to collect. Um, that, we feel pretty confident. And that was just last year's example. We've been looking for it for 20 years. Right. Um, you know, sampling every year, like 40,000 samples now. Nearly and, at 40,000 So samples. I feel like we've done a pretty good job, but continued testing and focused testing on those high-risk areas, developing that point system and saying, hey, we need to get um, – this number of samples or this number of points from each county to feel like our results are accurate and representative and that's what we're going for and it seems like you know we're working to achieve that this year it, it might seem like we're not doing as much in those five counties because like you said we're not doing mandatory check stations for muzzleloader and all of modern firearm and we don't have ch 17 check stations we've only got 13 but that's based on data last year and we redid that to make it as easy on the hunters as possible while also ensuring that we'll get 
the statistically significant or valid data that we need, right? Right. We're really just fine-tuning the whole process to make it easier on our staff and, of course, the hunters. Yeah, and there were some check stations last year where just nobody went. So. <laughs> they weren't the best locations, but... Well, you know, we did what we could last well, year. You know, I mean, live and learn. We had about a month to prepare, so I think we did it. I don't even think we had a month. Because last year, if you... What is today? Today is August the 4th. Um it was after this date last year. It was, I think, September 8th. September 8th was the day that was in my mind because I was supposed to go elk hunting. I was supposed to be in Colorado, remember, Lee? A lot of people got to eat West Kentucky barbecue as a result of surveillance. We had some great business owners helping (laughs) us out there. But last year, I remember, because I was literally packed for an elk hunt. I was going to go to Colorado and go hunt elk, and then I got a call, and I probably still could have gone, but I was going to go with Gabe and Kyle Sams. And yeah, I was like, man. So Labor I, uh, Day weekend got ruined for a lot of staff. That, that's that's when it was. We found out on very short notice. So when you say some of them weren't in the best locations, as far as we didn't have anybody bring them, we had to just find places we could go last year. Mm-hmm. So this year, everything should. I thought things were smooth last year, but this year everything should be really ironed out, really nice. I do. I will say this because people in that zone, and I understand that's a handful of potential listeners. You know, a small percentage of the state. Something that was really popular last year were our give giveaway items. Because when people brought a deer to the check station, we didn't. You know, we wanted to give them something back. So they, we had like thermoses or we had mm-hmm. knives and things mm-hmm. like that. We gave out little giveaway items, and those were extremely pop- popular. And I think some people actually went and got a second deer. Like they'd come to the check station and they'd get a knife and they'd see the thermoses over there and mm-hmm. head back out to the woods, get a second yeah. deer, come, yeah. come, come back. Hey, but I'm almost positive it worked. That, that those will be that there will be giveaway items this year. That's what I've been told, right? We yep, we will be doing that again. Oh, well, we talked about that in a meeting recently. We were like, somebody brought that up. Are there going to be giveaway items? And it was kind of undecided. And somebody oh, raised a point like better like that was people will be bummed we if can't disappoint yeah. our like, hunters giveaway items because that was one of the main things that people enjoyed last year so I, i'm almost positive that that's people the love works. the thermoses i they think just, it's a necessity we will make it work those. yeah i like I, I like the knives personally i don't know it just it, you know obviously it's not like it's a a bench made it's not a 300 dollars pocket knife they but, needed a little bit of sharpening but, but there's some a, use for a knife like that work. you know because you you want to have the pocket I carry knife. my k stockman every day yeah you want to have the pocket my knife. granddaddy had a stockman that's an old school knife you want the one you carry every day you want the one that stays in your my tackle box yep. you want one that stays in your glove box you know I've and got, that could be a good tackle box or glove box knife. exactly you know? that's what it is for me it's in my camping backpack it just stays in there all the time so if or I floating ever, you know it's always good to have a knife if you're Kayaking, mm-hmm. you, if you need to, but I never anchor. Some people anchor, which is stupid in flowing water, but some people do it. But you, if you need to cut the anchor rope. You don't like the idea of anchoring in flowing water? Um, not in a kayak. See, I would never tie it up. Yeah, I would do the old wrap method. Well, if I'm gonna, yeah. if I want to stop, I'm just gonna pull over, get out, and wait. It makes sense. I will say that, okay. I, you know, and then then you fool with all that. I want to use more anchors. Um, I plan on using anchor. Now, on a lake, I love it. Or in a bigger river and a big boat, fine. But in a kayak, I'm not a big fan. I think there's value in anchor for musky fishing out of a kayak. Because um, if you get to a spot and you, you know, you might not be able to pull over in a certain, you know, you might, you don't have the options when you're musky fishing that you do with a smallmouth. Like you might need to stop right here mm-hmm. to make these casts. And you want to be able to figure eight under the boat. You want to be able to keep the fish moving. So I think there's um, yes, good reasons. But I would never want a hard tied anchor to a kayak where it's like literally knotted off. I would want something that could slip through. Mm-hmm. So I would probably run the rope, you know, like 
around my handle one time just to introduce friction and then step on it or or you know just have something you could real quickly undo. i've got a little mine runs through and uh you can press a button and basically let all the line go out it's one of those that hits and it expands but yep. if you pull it it'll come back up it's mm-hmm. kind of it works pretty well but um one of my best friends when he was a kid was fishing below lake cumberland right below the dam back in the day you could take a little um there was a um, stairway that went down right to the base of the dam mm-hmm. and he would go with his granddad and throw dollflies and catch walleye and uh this guy was on there with son and, and daddy so um the adult man just took an anchor in a john boat and just whoosh, threw it when they were generating and the current was swift that boat immediately flipped um and the the granddaddy um had, i think he got a hold of a gas can and um the the son and the dad were both holding on to i think the only life jacket they had and dad let go the son and granddaddy survived and they found a dad three days later uh, so um don't be silly and current with anchors no the power of water yes yeah. especially when it's ripping out of that dam people don't realize how dangerous cumberland river is below that dam you know it scares me it's one of the places that i do worry about oh it makes you nervous i just don't like standing down there and looking at how t- tall that dam is and thinking, that's all water and that there. thing was kind of leaky a few years ago <laughs> yeah. if that went I would, you'll be done you know if it goes you're, it's you don't have to worry about suffering it's been <laughs> there for a long time though. yeah yeah fishing blow dams makes me nervous power of water is ridiculous there's some photos from eastern kentucky right now you can look at that or that'll show you that have you seen the one of the car that got pushed through the culvert i saw that one. Oh, and the 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 fire truck from Hinman, uh, amazing. I saw. I didn't see that. A trailer oh, yeah. flipped and squeezed between two other trailers. Really? God. Yeah. There's a fire truck below a um, uh, bridge, hung, and then there's like seven or eight cars mm-hmm. right in front of it, just like like they're you know. That's wild. Lego Lego pieces, you know, it's mm-hmm. nuts. Um, you know, buses I, in the middle of the. I mean, big buses in the middle of the stream now. It's gonna be a long term cleanup effort. Yeah, it's. There is a. We posted, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able to remember this, but we posted a link on our Facebook, the Kentucky Field one, I know the department did too, where people can make donations to the Eastern Kentucky mm-hmm. Flood Relief Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, a, a reliable uh, charity that you can donate to, and that money will go to those people. All law enforcement little- guys are doing a yeoman's job down there helping with security. Yeah. Uh, and the commissioner was out yesterday. I know we've been distributing air conditioners and they're going to different like Lowe's and getting uh, any of them that may have been returned or whatever, but still work. Hey, can mm-hmm. can we get a deal on those just to get some relief down there? There's a yeah. lot of people working their butts off to help people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's good to see. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's weird. Yeah, like I sit here and I get my trail cam photo sent to me and I get all amped up and I'm thinking about deer season, but it's completely different for people in other parts of the state, you know. So but while my brain is thinking of it, the Dove Guide is online now, and one of the things that that we used to not worry about is the mentor field a uh, mentor youth fields used to fill up like in two days and now if you if you have a family member um a friend of a you know younger friend who's a friend and you want to be a mentor there's probably signups available and it's a great opportunity um you're going to be able to see lots of birds you're going to be the only people on that field on on that day um and you know they used to fill up um in like two days now you've got until the 12th of august to go online and register so if if you want to have a good dove hunting experience you want to take your son 
your nephew, a friend, uh, and be a mentor. You know, there's two shotguns allowed per stake, but three people can hunt. So uh, if you want to be a mentor and, and, and take uh, a family member and have really fast and furious dove hunting, then I, I can't imagine a better opportunity. Yeah, that. that's something Wes kind of told us last time mm-hmm. he was here about. And so those still aren't full. So if people are looking for a dove hunting opportunity, you just, and you can shoot. I mean, it's not just where mm-hmm. you're taking a youth out there to shoot. You're allowed to, to hunt also. Mm-hmm. So that's a good opportunity. More people should probably take advantage of. People all love hitting the public fields. Like, well, love hitting public fields. Well, but that one over reason, here that you and I have hunted before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, but the youth mentor one is like the best dove hunting opportunity for a public field. Oh, yeah. It's n- nothing can touch it. Have somebody you're taking with you who's mm-hmm. never really been before who's younger. So I remember when I, uh, Mr. Goff used to take us and the adults, I'd have to sit in the back of the truck while they dove hunted. <laughs> And I remember being by corn where they were cutting silage, and I'd be when I'd hear them shooting, and I'd be like, "Well, I can't wait till I'm a dog. I can go do that." You know, no, I'm ready. I'm. But I mean, it, it it was exciting. I can't wait for deer season. Dove season's going to help get me there without, you know, because I'm I'm telling you, like I I have a hard time getting up every morning, except for like if I was going fishing tomorrow morning. Let's just say I got to get up at three o'clock. I'll probably be up two forty five waiting on my alarm oh, I, I, you know? when I know I'm going fishing yeah. or I have a big photo shoot or I'm going to be on the TV show or something like that. I don't sleep very no, yeah. long before. That's just but it's weird. amazing. If you know, you have to get up and like uh, do something really hard. <laughs> you sleep like the fishing. You just, it's amazing how that works. Oh, no, you got that mental clock and it's like, uh, okay, well, I'll work through the process. What time's sunrise? What, how long is it going to take me to walk in? I got to stop and get a drink on the way. Okay. I need to leave the house by this time. And, you know, you do that backwards. So you get in your mind, I got to get up at 3.30 tomorrow. And it's like, if I do that process and I think through it, I'm always going to get up easy because I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. But, man, that 6.30 alarm daily just <laughs> stinks, you know. Give me that 3 o'clock alarm all day. <laughs> that's, am- that's amazing how that works. Hopefully that's what I'll be doing tomorrow morning. But let's recap real quick what we talked about. I want to try to run through and make sure we hit on everything. Um, we talked about last year's surveillance zone efforts right talked Mm -hmm. about why those went into place with the positive case in tennessee Mm -hmm. um the surveillance zone last year no positive cases anywhere in the state this year uh the baiting ban still in place debone meat only can leave the surveillance zone those five clean skulls cap antlers um and we're going to have check stations this year during modern firearms season only and only on the saturday sunday monday Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then the Saturday, Sunday of modern firearm season. And that'll give us enough samples to know for sure whether or not we have it in those counties or not. More than enough, yes. Um, Statewide, if somebody's outside of those five counties, they can still get their deer tested. They can take it to one of the um, voluntary drop-off locations, and those locations are on the website. They're scattered all over the state. And like I said earlier, you'll get a little tear off tag a little number where you can look up your results and you will get the age of your deer as well as a cwd positive or negative right so that's kind of the important stuff with cwd i did want to ask you because you know i wanted to start it off this way but we just kind of jumped straight into it so you originally were in chicago Mm -hmm. is that where you're from Yes. So you're from like Chicago like or downtown? I was like like Chicago, Chicago, or like around Chicago. She said Chicago. Uh, my Chicago. mom's side is in inner city Chicago, okay. um, and then I grew up in the southern suburbs. Okay, I've it's been so long since I've been to Chicago. I've been to Aurora more recently, mm-hmm. which kind of takes me. I, I avoid major cities like that. I also do now. <laughs> you know, toll roads and just traffic, and I got stuck in the 
Bronx one time pulling a trailer, and it was horrible. Oh, that would be like, yeah, that'd be terrible. It was. Um, I remember the first time I went through Chicago, we went over the top of the Polish neighborhood. I remember seeing the, that's the, where my mom grew up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so how did how in the world did you get from Chicago, inner city Chicago, at that to? Mm. Kentucky Deer Deer Program. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's it's quite a... um, one of the craziest backgrounds. But uh, my dad worked for the Cook County, so Cook County is uh, mm-hmm. what Chicago's in, the Forest Preserve. Um, he worked for the mechanical fleet, so he was um, supervisor of the garage, fixing up all their lawnmowers or vehicles. Um, but they also did a lot of wildlife research, and they had a wildlife biologist, and. I tried to find my way in where I could volunteer while they were catching deer or catching uh, raccoons and doing testing on those. Um, So I just started getting really interested. He also um, had meetings at Brookfield Zoo. So I got an inside look at Brookfield Zoo. I didn't know if I wanted to do, you know, like zoo conservation work uh, where they do do wildlife conservation Um, or if I wanted to be in the wildlife field. So I went to the University of Illinois for my undergrad. I was pre-veterinary medicine. Um, But then I I really figured out that I want to do wildlife conservation work um, and specifically wildlife health. Mm -hmm. So I stayed for my master's um, with their chronic wasting disease lab. And the disease was just fascinating. It was much less researched um, about 10 years ago. and they got all of the samples from throughout the state. So they were doing really cool research on the disease. Um, and then immediately after my master's, uh, Michigan State University started um, coming up with some chronic wasting disease projects. So I went right there for my PhD um, and continued on with chronic wasting disease. And then you got picked up by Kentucky last September for RCWD surveillance zone and kind of right. parlayed that into what we got going on there. Right. Kentucky is just in such a unique position where they can do really good work and they have a chance of minimizing this disease threat. Um, so I think it's extremely important. Yeah. Well, that makes perfect sense. I was just kind of wondering. Now, when you say the, you know, working with wildlife in that area of Chicago, or is that like inner city wildlife, like deer? And- yeah, so they there is a really awesome urban coyote project. That's I see, I, that's where I was going for with For over 10 years, um, and that's out of the Ohio State University, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, but they're doing really cool behavioral studies, um, collaring, uh, they microchip the pups. Los Angeles has a really strong population yeah, of coyotes. Yeah, Los Angeles. Oh, um, dude, I mean... I don't know about, about I mean, Chicago well, so the, specifically. I think I'm Jefferson probably, County. I mean, Jeff, I, I've got a, a last year. I showed you that video of that coyote in my neighborhood. That lady, remember that? <laughs> what she? What? It, well, I was obviously I saw a coyote running through my neighborhood, and I'm like in Louisville, mm-hmm. so I thought it was pretty interesting. So I'm following it in my vehicle and watching it run through the neighborhood, and it goes in this little park called <laughs> Pee Wee Park, and it's like a three acre park. It's tiny, yeah. and there was this lady in there by the swing set. And coyote runs past her on the sidewalk and I walk over there and I'm watching this coyote run around and she's like, you need to get your dog. <laughs> that's, like, that's not a dog. That's not a dog. It's not my pet and that's not a dog. No, it's, it's on the video. I'm like, oh, that's a wild animal. You know, but people, there's coyotes everywhere. We've got one drainage ditch that runs through the neighborhood that's got grown up brushy cover and some culverts and I guarantee you there's coyotes in there. They will make a home out of anything. Mm-hmm. Any size. Oh, they're, yeah, they're extremely they're, adaptive. Yeah, they're. That's what's so amazing about coyotes is that, and you, I'm sure you know more about this than me, but I mean 
from what I understand, you know, 75 or 80 years ago, they were pretty much a desert animal in the southwest U.S., and now they're in every city of every state. Right, so pretty much there, uh, there's been no other species that the government has tried to spend so, mu- so much money trying to eradicate, and those eradication efforts backfired. It made them yep. so adaptable that they will live pretty much anywhere where they're not being completely threatened. I mean, you got them down there in the very southern. So you, you our attempts to exterminate them just made them smaller. Right. Correct. And if them, yeah. there's one book, Coyote America, I wish I knew who it was, uh, who the author is, but that has is the most fascinating book. I disagree with some of the logic, though. Did uh, you read it? No, but I've heard the I've heard some of the arguments as far as what, what she's talking about right now, as far as it was the pressure that pushed the coyotes out, made them expand their, their range. I mean, that makes sense. It's also... Um, getting rid of other predators, not having wolves in areas, right. getting mm-hmm. rid of mountain lions. And, right. and so there's a lot of that stuff. But one of the points that I don't know if it's made in that book or if it's somebody else, but one of the points is that by hunting coyotes, you're going to increase their population because they reproduce at a higher rate and have more offspring when there's, you know, if there's less coyotes around. So if you take out a coyote or two, then that opens up the door for more coyotes to move in and for higher reproductive rates. That's kind of the gist of it, right? That's kind of um, the standard population curve for all wildlife. So we see that with deer. They're more likely to have twins and triplets when density is at a, uh, a prime. Uh, hmm. When density allows for growth. Yeah. Right. Um, but I just think that kind of ignores, and I, I'm just spouting off my opinion, the fact that there's a holding capacity of a landscape mm-hmm. as Absolutely. far as food, water, shelter. So hunting... Not hunting coyotes, in my opinion, allows saturation of the landscape. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that hunting coyotes is going to reduce the population at all, but I don't see how it can increase the carrying capacity. So I think that in the long run, that landscape is still going to be limited to a certain number of individuals. Oh, absolutely. So I think a lot of people use that logic as an anti-hunting approach for coyotes. They're saying, well, you coyote hunters are actually creating more of a problem. You're increasing the population, but I'm looking at it like, well, you're kind of ignoring the fact that there is a food, water, shelter, carrying capacity of the landscape. You're kind of ignoring like that basic science to try to make a point. And, you know, I just wish people would give all the facts instead of picking and choosing, you know, the ones that fit their narrative. What do you think of uh, mutton? Mutton. Have you had West Kentucky mutton? No. I don't even know this lady. Have you you had mutton? Mutton's lamb, right? Yes. No. Like old, old sheep. Yeah, Me. it's old. That's exactly what it is. That's a delicacy in West Kentucky. Um, mutton? Yes, barbecued mutton. That's I don't Owensboro think it's a delicacy specialty. anywhere. My wife's uh, it shouldn't be. mother's family's all from Owensboro, and mutton is the thing. I guess I need to put that on the list. Well, the, the Owensboro had quite a, a sheep population one time. Right. Uh, it was a sheep breeding area. Were the coyotes, and when they would, you think of this person? Yeah, well, they, uh, <laughs> when they get older... They get a little tough, so yeah. barbecuing them and slow cooking okay. was a way to, to use it. All right. But I was wondering when y'all were out there if you ever had mutton. I didn't. I usually stick to the pork. Yeah. But, I mean, it's an acquired taste. So I'll try it. I'll try anything once. And have you had a double cheeseburger at uh, the Blues Dairy Bar in Aurora? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in Aurora? I've been told to go there many times, yeah. so I had to go. Did, did you like it? Oh, yeah. And it is packed oh, no, no matter what time you go. I never have. Oh, it's in Aurora on the, the western side of Kentucky Lake, near Ken Lake. Oh, okay. state you said Aurora. <laughs> I was thinking Chicago still. Yeah, uh, no, Aurora. I was Kentucky. thinking Aurora, Aurora, Illinois. But it's like something from Happy Days. It's like the fifties. It's adorable. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's like a throwback neon sign, but the 
the cheeseburgers are fabulous. You guys, and the best peanut butter malt. Do you have, do you have peanut butter malt? I didn't have the peanut butter one. Oh, God, it's delicious. Lee, are you talking about this food stuff because you're hungry? Um, yes. You're making me hungry. I say we, I say we call it quits. You want to? You got anything else, Lee? You want to look at Well, just uh, Duffield's on. Um, be, remember, um, if you want to go scout a public field, we now, uh, August 15th, the opening day, you can don't get out of your car. You can go drive by and look, but... What was happening is people were getting out and kind of hazing the fields and heating them up before the hunting started. You don't want human activity around the dove field. Yeah, so if you want to drive by, but not, you know, look at binoculars, whatever, fine. But don't get out and get in the dove field from August 15th to September 1st. Dove season's right around the corner. Deer season's right around the corner. We just hit on dates, September 3rd for deer, <clears throat> archery. And crossbow comes in shortly after that on the 18th, 17th. Maybe two weeks later. I had to look at the calendar. So, I mean, we're getting ready to get into fall hunting. That's a good thing for the TV show because we're starting to get the Kentucky afloat comments about how we aren't doing any hunting. <laughs> you know, people are just, just this time of year, July, August. Oh, yeah. Well, people, I mean, the show ought to be called Kentucky afloat. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, well, you, you know. We abide by season dates, too. So <laughs> don't worry. We'll have some fresh new hunting coming for well, you. Well, and then you'll hear, oh, see us hunting for the people who want to see fishing. So. <laughs> no, we've, we've, got, we've got squirrel hunts planned. Uh, we're going to do public land deer hunt this year. We're going to go in by boat and, you know, do some stuff. August 20th is when squirrel season opens up. So we'll start hunting August 20th. Then we'll be dove hunting September 1st. And we'll be deer hunting September 3rd. So plenty of hunting coming up and no I, doubt. Can't, I can't wait for it noel thank you for stopping by today and it wasn't uh, too bad was it um no. did you think it was gonna be bad <laughs> yeah well you never know we're pretty laid back <laughs> no. it might be too laid back no this is great no. all right well thank you all for coming on thank you guys so much hopefully uh hopefully i have a musky picture sending morally all right